I'm not going to preach about Job. Uh, last week I did, and we got two more weeks of Job. Maybe I'll say something uh, in the sermon about, about this. But Job is going through a very tough time here. And remember the difference between Proverbs and the book of Job. Proverbs is mostly concerned with saying, if you do this, this is what the consequences will be. And more to the point, the stuff that we get into is the result of our own actions. And actually, I believe that mainly that may be so. But this is about an, a, a, a righteous person who is being afflicted as the result of a cruel bet between God and the adversary. Satan, actually, more accurately than advocate, means adversary. It doesn't mean the devil, but the tradition has understood it to be that way. But that's not what it really means. And uh, it gives us a rise to the question, uh, is God capricious? And so we need to hold that thought, because I'm not going to answer it today, but I want to say it every time we read from the book of Job. And Job now simply cannot find God. He doesn't know where God is. God is obscure to him, and he himself wishes to hide from God. Right? Because he's fearful that maybe this affliction is the result of something that he's done. Recently, I've had a number of people speak to me, uh, both uh, here but also outside uh, St. Luke's Church, who have had terrible worries about whether or not God is going to punish them or not. And is there something that they've done that they're completely unaware of that is going to put their post-mortem bliss in jeopardy? Right? So it's more important forever than ever for Episcopalians to assert the fact that God loves, accepts, and forgives us unconditionally, but also calls us to cooperate with the divine initiative that has been begun in each of us. And we can't say that uh, often enough. What I want to focus on today is, is the gospel. This is, uh, in parishes, normally the stewardship time where we begin this and somehow, coincidentally, all these gospel readings have something to do with the idea of stewardship or to plant the seed because soon you will be asked to um, uh, make a commitment to St. Luke's Church for 2016. And we think that's an extremely important thing. But this gospel is, has many levels. Uh, one of them is about our stuff and how we use it. But one of them is also about the kingdom of God and what we mean by it when we use the term the kingdom of God and how do we understand it. And remember that during the Green Sundays, all of the Green Sundays in some way, what we read in the biblical witness has something to do with the nature of discipleship, the ways, the means, and the cost of Christian discipleship. I've spoken to you before, um, here's why I'm saying all of this, because it's important. Why it's important to support your parish, why you believe you've been fed, if at all, at your parish, and understanding coming to uh, the liturgy on Sunday is an important thing. 
And all during my ministry, I've been concerned to say, not often enough, I'm sorry to say, that I believe that your parish church should be your center, but it should not be your circumference. Right? And we get caught up in the, you know, the details of the center sometimes. But the conversation that's being had now in the Episcopal Church about being outwardly focused has always been there. This is not new. But it is important to understand the relationship between being fed and nurtured spiritually and how you are a God's person in the world. What it is you feel about within, at any stage of your life, how you can be a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love. So St. Luke's is our center but not our circumference. Here's one uh, description of Christian discipleship. It's not, uh, it, it's just what it is. One who witnesses to an intentional faith is modeled in the baptismal covenant. One who keeps the Sabbath and commits to attending worship every Sunday. One who honors the tithe as the biblical standard of faithful financial giving to the church one who uses her or his spiritual gifts in the work of the upbuilding of the church, and one who reaches out to others with the love of Christ. The priest I began my ministry with in Tucson, Arizona said, if what we're doing here now has no application to what we do out there, it is a meaningless exercise. We have to see this relationship very very clearly. And by the way, there's a lot of conversation here now about what Anglo-Catholic means. The Anglo-Catholic movement and the Anglican Church has something to do with out there, in fact, maybe mostly, because the clergy and the people who became involved in the Catholic revival in England and in here were very outwardly focused in their understanding. It wasn't just about the vesture and the gestures and so on. So we need to remember that when we think about these kinds of things. So, the kingdom of God. Uh, one of the problems that we've had for so long in the church is that we have been given the idea, mainly because of reading the Bible and some of the translations into English, uh, and just to, as the tradition grew, from understanding that the kingdom of God is somewhere else and you and I need to work really hard here so that we get there. Right? And Jesus doesn't understand the kingdom of God that way. And uh, in many trans some translations in the English Bible, you'll read something like, the kingdom of God is within you. Well, that's true. You hear me say all the time that Father Keating says we are, or quotes one of the great fathers of the church, that says, we are not God, but our true self is God. That's true. But the translation might be done better if we would say the kingdom of God is near you, right here. So it's kind of a field that we're in where the presence of the kingdom of God and the values may be somewhat elusive, but are here. And the teaching of Jesus has something to do with everybody learning how, in some way, both through their thinking, through their, their praying, and through their relational life, 
bring into being more fully the kingdom that, that he describes here. Here. So getting worried and nervous about going there can get us sort of off task in terms of what our vocation is as Christian people. That we need to have some idea that the kingdom of God is something that we assist in the process of making a reality. That's certainly how Jesus would have understood it. Now the problem with this is, is that certainly in the, in the pastoral experience of the church, you've got people who say, yeah, but what about my Aunt Nora, who's died, where is she now? Right? Well, she is safe with God in the everlasting arms. You know, in John's Gospel where it says, in my Father's house are many rooms, or if you like the authorized version, in my Father's house are many mansions, which sort of sounds grander, doesn't it? <laughs> but the Greek means really the place that you are is like a bed and breakfast. It's a transitional location to where? Back here at the general resurrection, the promise of the Bible is, is that we are all going to be together again at the general resurrection. When? I don't know. I don't know. But that is the promise. And that faithful people should, should know that. So we don't need to worry about Aunt Nora necessarily. We need to think about how we can be a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love. So today, Jesus uh, encounters the rich young man. And the rich young man says, what should I do to have eternal life? So Jesus kind of gives a loose, off-the-cuff quotation of the Ten Commandments. Do not defraud may be a better way. Uh, he, he meant do not covet, right? So he's rehearsing the Ten Commandments and speaking in this, in this fashion. And so this young fellow says, I've done all those things. And he said, well, there's one more thing you need to do. You need to get rid of all your stuff and come and follow me. Now I read that and I think to myself, all right, remember when we hear the sayings of Jesus? We have to do some thinking about what did he mean when he said it? What did the uh, church that preserved the saying mean when they preserved it and how did they understand it in their own communities? And what value or use does it have to us, if any? So we have to think about now, uh, is this listening to this and putting it to work, does that mean that all of us tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock in the morning need to engage in a complete renunciation of all of our material goods? I think not. Because elsewhere in the Gospels and in our patron St. Luke's Gospel, who speaks about these issues more than any other Gospel writer, Issues of economic disparity, issues of economic justice, issues of stewardship over our resources. He's, Jesus, in Luke's Gospel, speaks about the, ne the nature of right relationship. And in this Gospel, that is true too. 
And what Jesus is speaking to this young man about is attachment. The Buddha says that one of the things that uh, causes suffering, which is what life is in his suffering, is attachment. And all of us know people, and maybe even ourselves, who are upset, worried, nervous, angry about our attachments. And how do we handle them? And what do we do with them? And in one sense, Jesus says, you need to let go. You need to renounce that. <clears throat> and, to, and to do a big think about what it might mean uh, as you live. A few years ago, Time Magazine had an article, uh, the, the title, the cover said, this is before I s still was reading a magazine, think of it, and uh, said, does God want you to be rich? And then, of course, it was a discussion of all of the great big box churches and some of them who, Joel Olstein and all this business about the prosperity gospel and, and so forth. Uh, and one, uh, one person said something that I thought, though, was very good, and that is uh, our self-worth is not a function of our net worth. You know, so our success is often for us internally are, are signs of our, uh, gives, gives us an affirmation of our self-worth, and that's why we attach to that, because it's very important. Uh, for us, for our emotional, spiritual, and mental states, for that to be so. And the Savior is saying that there needs to be some distance between these things. Uh, Marcus Bohr, who I don't agree with all the time, but in his little commentary on Mark's gospel, speaks uh, about a couple of things that may be important in this regard. Um, these sayings, all the ones he gets into about renunciate, giving away your stuff, and so on. These sayings are also commonly misunderstood when they are coupled with the common notion that the Christian gospel is about how to get to heaven. The issue becomes, can't wealthy people go to heaven? Then the conversation turns to requirements for salvation beyond death. And that's what we've been doing with this thing for a long time. He says, in the first century historical context, that is not what Jesus' teachings about wealth and the wealthy were about. In his world, the wealthy were part of the ruling elite at the top of the domination system, the wealthiest 1% to 2% of the population who set the system up so that one-half to two-thirds of the production of wealth from the peasant class flowed to them. In that world, if you were wealthy, you were a collaborator with the domination system, or at least complicit with it. Do you, is there anything that's changed? Is there anything that's changed? And maybe in our own country, this is standing out in greater relief than it did for a long time. You know? And it just keeps poodling along when we think about how that how that works. My own view is, is that tomorrow at 8 a.m. we're not going to completely renounce all of our stuff and give it away and do all... By the way, there is a real practical issue here, even if you're in favor or not, and that is, if we renounce all, all of our stuff, what are we going to do with all the people making stuff? 
that we buy, right? I mean, how are we going to keep this, this thing rolling? Some may say, well, we shouldn't. It should just crash into a big heap, you know. I'm not so sure that that's always the best solution. Borg says here, don't feel guilty if your life has turned out well financially. Be grateful. It is something to be thankful for, but do ponder what it might mean to take seriously God's passion for a transformed world, the kingdom of God as seen in Jesus. The question for those of us who have some wealth then becomes, how do we use the wealth we have been given to further God's passion for a different kind of world? You know? So it's another way of describing what... Uh, who is the great expert on world religions? I forget, its name has gone out of my head. But Bill Moyers had him on. Houston Smith. Yeah, Houston Smith. He said, how would you know, Houston, if you're making any spiritual progress? How would you know? In any of the great faith traditions, how do we know that we're making any spiritual progress? And he said, without exception, what the person discovers as they seek to be serious and intentional about the practice of this faith tradition, they notice in themselves an increase in generosity. That means generosity with regard to their material possessions, but it also means the generous impulse in looking at each other as being made in the image and likeness of God and identifying in them, uh, their true self. I think it also has something to do with the capacity to be generous in receiving from people the benefits of their practical wisdom. You know, my, one of my heroes, Edwin Friedman, said, wisdom is the accumulated response to adversity. What have you learned from this? Have you ever been through anything like this before? And when you were, what did you do? So if you're sitting at somebody's bedside, it might be helpful to share that without prejudice. But maybe when you're lying in the bed and somebody says that to you, it might be nice to receive it and do a think on what it might mean. So this week when we think... Uh, about all of the kingdom of God and its values, know that it is right next to you, that you are the recipient of God's generosity from others, and when you are willing, consciously or unconsciously, to extend and make the gracious gesture, know that God is calling you into right relationship with your possessions, and that the material prosperity you benefit from is a function of a combination of talent, the generosity of others, and serendipity. When I moved down here, I was going to, but I just got to say, when I moved down to the Silicon Valley in 1993, and it was flying high in April down here, and people began to talk about this, and we're in the midst of this great meritocracy, and all of this stuff is going on, there wasn't a word said about serendipity. That somebody can be the right person in the right place at the right time. One of my senior wardens at Christ Church Sausalito moved to the Hawaiian Islands in 1953. And he worked for the Prudential Insurance Company. 
the Prue, as he called it. He goes over to the Hawaiian Islands, and in 1950, selling insurance, and in 1959, Hawaii became a state. And Sten Johnson sold the insurance to the state of Hawaii. Yeah. You know? And he said to me, you know what the Prue told me? The Prue told me, what are you going to do next year? <laughs> okay. But it was a pretty serendipitous event, wasn't it? And we ought to have gratitude for that. It's not that we're not part of that, but it is the fact that serendipity does influence our own prosperity. And also negative serendipity, which we don't think about or talk about that much. So maybe when you think about stewardship and your commitments, uh, be grateful for the positive serendipity that's in your life. And also remember that uh, your self-worth is not measured by your net worth. Amen. Amen. Amen.